Good morning, church family. What comes to your mind when you hear the word inheritance? Maybe you think of the sadness of an old and dying parent, but maybe this is coupled with the happy thought of receiving a large sum of money or real estate or heirlooms. Does the thought of receiving inheritance excite you? Our text this morning is Genesis chapter 25, and it is a chapter about inheritance. We'll be continuing our series through Genesis chapter 25. It doesn't talk about any ordinary earthly inheritance, however. It has more to do with what happens after you die than what happens after your parents die. It is the very blessing of God that this inheritance is about. This chapter is a transition chapter. It follows the death of Abraham and goes outside to the era of Isaac and Jacob. The main point of this chapter and the main point of this sermon can be summarized as this. God chooses who will inherit his blessing. If you write anything down, you can write this down. God chooses who will inherit his blessing. The text can be divided into three sections. The first section is a transfer of the blessing, verses 1 through 18. A transfer of the blessing. The second section can be called a prophecy of the preborn, verses 19 through 28. A prophecy of the preborn. And the final section can be called a fool's trade, verses 29 through 34. A fool's trade. So the three sections are a transfer of the blessing, a prophecy of the preborn, and a fool's trade. Well, let's dive into the first section, verses 1 through 18 of Genesis chapter 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living... He sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, 
and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nephish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. By the end of his life, Abraham had many, many children. In addition to having Ishmael by Hagar and Isaac by Sarah, he had six children by Keturah. And now, as he approached the end of his life, it was time for Abraham to make his final arrangements. Of his eight children, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Abraham acted in accordance with God's word and making Isaac his sole heir who would receive the promise of land, offspring, and a blessing. As if to remove all doubt that Isaac was to be the only heir of the promise, Abraham sent all his other sons away. Isaac alone would remain in Canaan, the promised land, and his half-brothers must not bother him, but leave him alone to prosper. Take note, however, that Abraham was not a negligent father. He gave gifts to Isaac's half-brothers. Even those outside of God's covenant community are blessed with far more than what they deserve. Abraham was a wealthy and loving father, and so is God. And now, with all of his affairs in order, the time has come for Abraham to die. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Abraham, the exalted father of a multitude, the heir of the world, according to Paul the Apostle, the friend of God, Abraham has died. He died in accordance with God's word in Genesis 15, 15. You will go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried in a good old age. Abraham's chosen burial spot was in the promised land of Canaan. Even to the point of death, Abraham showed faith. Abraham chose to be buried with his wife, Sarah, the mother of the child of promise. The half-brothers of Isaac, Ishmael, the half-brothers Isaac and Ishmael reunited to bury their father. I think this is evidence that Abraham was a good father to Ishmael, that even after his death, Ishmael honored him and buried him. Abraham died having only tasted the fulfillment of God's promise. The only land he owned was his burial plot. The only descendants he had were a few children and a few grandchildren. Certainly no great nation as God had promised. Abraham's experience is not unlike yours, Christian. Abraham believed the promise of God but only saw its fulfillment from a distance. He tasted a little, but died before he ever received his full inheritance. Hebrews 11:9 says, By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, 
For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You also must look forward to that city that has foundations, the new heaven and earth, the beautiful home which Christ is preparing for you. To help you trust that God will indeed bring you to this blessed home, this beautiful place, God has given you a down payment which guarantees your entrance into this beautiful home. That guarantee, according to Scripture, is the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14 says, In him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Christian, be comforted by the Holy Spirit as you trust the Lord to receive your inheritance. Now that Abraham is dead, it is time for the transfer of God's blessing. Isaac was a true worshiper of God. He followed in the footsteps of faith that his father Abraham walked in, and Isaac also trusted God's promise. Therefore, after Abraham's death, the text says, that God blessed Isaac, Abraham's son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Ishmael, on the other hand, is a different story. He did indeed father 12 princes, as God had promised. But at the end of the day, Ishmael was not chosen by God to receive true spiritual blessing. He was a wild donkey of a man, as God had predicted, he rose up against his siblings. His descendants, the Ishmaelites, would be enemies of the descendants of Isaac for generations to come. Ishmael's earthly greatness, though a kind gift from God, was ultimately in comparison of no value if he did not repent of his sins and trust in the Lord for mercy. Your earthly blessings are meant to point you to the one who gave them to you. Do not take them for granted. Well, that is the first section, a transfer of the blessing from Abraham to Isaac. Isaac alone received this blessing as God had prophesied even before he was born. God chooses who will inherit his blessing. Now let us move on to the next section where we'll see a prophecy of the preborn. There's a couple other names for this section that I came up with that also fit. You could call it a prophecy of the preborn, or you could call it a fetal foreshadowing, or better yet, a battle of the babies. So let's move on to verses 19 through, 30, through 28. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. 
The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Rebekah, like Sarah and many other faithful women in the Bible, Rebekah is infertile. However, she had a loving husband who prayed for her. Isaac prayed, not primarily that he would have a child, that he would have a legacy to pass on, but he prayed for his wife. More than his own legacy, Isaac cared about the well-being of his wife. Unlike his father Abraham, Isaac did not seek out unrighteous means of obtaining a child. He did not scheme or strategize, but simply trusted the providence of the one who opens and closes the womb. And he prayed. Finally, after 20 years, you saw that he was 40 when they married, 60 when they had children. After 20 years of marriage, Rebekah conceived. The Lord heard Isaac's prayer. The Lord, having already promised to make a great nation of Isaac, was delighted to give him that child in response to prayer. While Rebekah was pregnant, the children struggled together within her. Now, as a man, I have no idea what this felt like, but I also bet that many pregnant women have not experienced this either. Apparently, the physical pain that was caused by two fetuses duking it out inside of her womb was so severe that she cried out, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? She asked the Lord. The Lord heard her cry, her inquiry, and he answered her with a prophecy concerning her children. The purpose of the pain Rebecca was feeling was to make God's word real to her. It was to make her take God's word seriously. This prophecy was a big deal to her because she knew why the pain was there. So when God spoke, she must listen. The word that God spoke was that two nations would sprout from her womb and they will be opposed to each other. In this struggle for domination, the younger will prevail. Jacob, the younger, will prevail over Esau. Now question, is this unfair on God's part? Here are two preborn babies neither of whom have done anything right or wrong yet. And God has already ordained that one of them will be stronger than the other and be served by the other one. Does Esau, the older, deserve better? What do you think? Well, here's the key. Esau did not get anything less than what he deserved. Jacob, on the other hand, got much, much more than what he deserved. Jacob received Mercy. So is God unjust for showing mercy to some and not to others? 
Is he unjust for choosing some and not others? Well, perhaps some perspective would help. First, let's consider who God is. Who is God? First, he is perfectly good. God is perfectly good. He is love. He hates evil, and he loves righteousness. He is the maker of everything. He is worthy of receiving thanks and praise and worship from all his creatures. He is all-powerful and fearsome. He is majestic. He is the best of beings. Our God is holy, 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 as we just sang in the song this morning. And consider what this God has done for you and me. This holy God whom we deserve nothing from. What has he done for you and me? Well, first of all, the Lord has given you air to breathe. After making you, he gave you lungs and he gave you air to breathe. He has given you a heart that beats and sustains your life. Hebrews says that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only is he actively preventing you from disintegrating at this very moment, but he's actively preventing the whole universe from disintegrating at this very moment. He has given you a beautiful sky to gaze at every morning. He has given you food and made it so that the very thing that sustains you is pleasurable to consume. He gave you taste buds. He has given you a mind to understand beauty and love and literature and art and music. He's given you a mind to understand these things. He has given you goofy animals, cute animals, fearsome and majestic animals. God's blessings are innumerable. He has given us much more than what we deserve. Well, finally, consider who you are, his creature. Are you a grateful creature? Are you adequately grateful? Are you grateful in proportion to the amount that God has blessed you? I would contend not. In fact, we are all disobedient creatures. God is worthy of all praise, all glory, and all honor. And when's the last time any of us have more than five seconds spent loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything in our being? Has any of us done that for five seconds? God is deserving of that every moment of our lives. To bring this home, imagine the following scenario. Imagine a little boy who sits at a table every day, dining table. Periodically, a beautiful and delicious plate of food is put in front of him. Immediately, he gobbles up the food without ever looking up to see the one who gave it to him. His own mother, who loves him and who sustains him and who provides for him day by day by day, he doesn't even know what her face looks like. Now, what do you think of this child? Clearly, this is an ungrateful child. Some may even say he's apathetic. I would contend this child hates his mother. He doesn't even know his mother. But is this child really much different from anyone outside of Christ? The good and perfect God has shown such kindness to his creatures without receiving any thanks. Is this kind God obligated to show mercy to his creatures. Is he obligated? Our God is a God who loves justice and righteousness. He hates evil. He has no obligation to forgive those 
who are evil. But God is loving, he is kind, and he is merciful, and God does show mercy to some. Why does God show mercy to some? Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God has mercy on some. God had mercy on you, church, for his glory and for your happiness. We as a church have nothing to boast about. God plucked each and every one of us out of the fire and placed, him, placed us in his kingdom. We didn't come here because we're good and we want to be a part of a club. We came here because God put us here and he deserves all thanks for all of that. This is also a great comfort to us. God has mercy on us and it is him who chooses. And that is a comfort to us because if it's, if it's God who chooses, no one can ever snatch us out of his hand. God will hold on to us forever. He has forgiven every sin, past, present, and future, and he will never look at our, our sin again. If God has chosen to save you, he will never forget you. Well, that's the prophecy of the babies. What happens next? The boys are born. Esau came out first, but Jacob was right behind him, holding on to his heel. And the struggle that would continue between Jacob and Esau for the rest of their lives, it would not be long before Esau tripped and Jacob overtook him. Esau is given a name which very faintly resembles the Hebrew word for hairy. And Jacob is given a name that means he takes by the heel or he cheats. It's an ancient idiom. From the beginning and throughout this book, we will see very clearly that Jacob is not a righteous man in his own right. Jacob is a wicked man. Yet, God has mercy on him. God shows Jacob favor. The mercy of God on Jacob is even more scandalous against the backdrop of Jacob's sinfulness. Jacob will time and again prove what we just sang in the song, which is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. It is not of your own doing, not of works, so that no one may boast. Esau and Jacob grow up, and we see a glimpse into their personalities. One, as we saw, is hairy, outdoorsy, and a daddy's boy. The other is quiet, smooth-skinned, and a mama's boy. Neither of these personalities are objectively wrong or right. They're simply the personalities that they have, and we will see how they work themselves out through the sin nature of each individual. Well, we've seen the prophecy of the preborn where God sovereignly ordains who will receive his blessing, who will inherit. He will have mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. He is not arbitrary. People don't go to hell because, because God's arbitrary whims and sending people to hell. People go to hell because of their sinfulness. The only reason people go to heaven is because of God's kindness and because of God's mercy, and it is the perfect counsel of his own will that causes him to decide whom he will save and whom he will have mercy on. Now, God is sovereign over salvation, but his sovereignty by no means negates human responsibility. 
We will see this in the next section where the human will of Esau and Jacob are very, very active. God is not giving them anything that they did not ask for. This next section is called a fool's trade. A fool's trade. So let's read the last paragraph of Genesis chapter 25. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau comes in from a long day of working, and he's tired and he's hungry. And this day, he can't just walk over to the fridge and open it up and check if any of mom's meatloaf is left over. Neither can he go to the pantry and look for some little Debbies. In all probability, there is no food immediately available except for one thing, the soup that Jacob is cooking. Give me some of that red stew, he says. Esau, impulsive and entitled, he is hungry and will stop at nothing to satisfy his flesh. Interestingly, it was because Esau called the soup red that he got the nickname Edom, which is Hebrew for red, or it sounds like the Hebrew word for red. Esau's nickname will forever bring remembrance to the blunder he's about to make. Remember, his descendants are not called Esauites, they're called Edomites. Jacob's response reveals that he is calculating and likely has been scheming to obtain Esau's birthright for a while now. Sell me your birthright now, he says. For context, a birthright is the right of the firstborn. It is his status, his key to all of the firstborn's rights and privileges. Deuteronomy 21.17 gives an example of this in saying that the firstborn receives a double portion of the inheritance. So in the context of Esau and Jacob, a birthright is a very big deal because what is the inheritance? It is the blessing from God. When Jacob seeks to obtain Esau's birthright, we are witnessing the unfolding of the prophecy in the last section. The older shall serve the younger. Esau responds to Jacob, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? This statement is profoundly foolish. Esau is nothing like his fathers, Isaac and Abraham. Isaac and Abraham both had a taste for heavenly things. They both had a view toward inheritance after this life, not just within this life. They had resurrection faith, as Pastor John preached on Genesis 22. Esau is not like Abraham and Isaac, Esau is only concerned with this life. 
although he is very much hungry, his thinking, arguably, is very characteristic of a glutton. We'll see this. He says, of what use is a birthright? In other words, of what use is God's blessing? I'm about to die. Christian, do you recognize that this sort of illogical thinking very often precedes our own sin when we sin? Oh, I'm so tempted. I'm so exhausted. I'm so hungry. I'm so frustrated. How big of a deal is it really if I dirty myself before the Lord and engage in a little bit of pleasure now? Standing in the presence of God seems a small thing in that moment. And the momentary pleasure of indulging in that sin seems oh so worthwhile. There is a reason that the desires of our sinful flesh are called deceitful desires in Ephesians 4.22. They are deceitful desires because they are completely irrational and yet they have the power to persuade you to sin. Jacob says, swear to me now. Jacob wants to make absolute certain he comes out the victor. And here is the decisive moment for Esau. Will he swear? Let us recognize the gravity of the present situation. While Esau is peering down at the soup, he is really leaning over a precipice of death. His birthright hangs in the balance. And this birthright is, in a frighteningly meaningful sense, Esau's very salvation. It is the state of his soul and his life after death. Why? Here's why. What Esau chooses to do with his birthright is a visible expression of what Esau has already chosen to do with the blessing his father Isaac received from God. If Esau does not desire his birthright, It is because he does not value the blessing that his father Isaac received from God. And if Esau does not value the blessing that his father Isaac received from God, he proves that he does not trust God's promises. And that disqualifies him from ever benefiting from them. So, what does it say? So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then, notice how quickly the next series of events takes place. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Just like that, Esau gobbled up the food and went about with his day. No reclining at the table, no afterglow, no sitting and cherishing the momentary pleasure of food, Esau's birthright is lost. Sure, he has a full belly, but only for the next few hours. The taste of the food has already passed through his mouth, and now Esau is left with nothing, absolutely nothing. Was it worth it, Esau? Was it worth it? Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 15 through 17. Hebrews 12, verses 15 through 17. 
the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the reader to persevere to the end and to look forward to heaven. And what does the writer say? The writer says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here is the danger of sin. Sin not only separates us from God, but sin hardens our hearts. Esau found no chance to repent because he did not have it in him. He was not remorseful for what he had done. He simply wanted the good stuff. Friend, guard yourself from sin that hardens you. Do not toy with sin. Do not play with sin. Don't tempt yourself. We will see in the next few chapters that what the writer of Hebrews said is true. Esau is not repentant. He didn't have a contrite heart. He continued in sin. He took multiple wives. He made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Esau did not repent. In the final verse in Genesis chapter 25, or the final sentence really, it says, Thus Esau despised his birthright. It's kind of surprising, isn't it, that in this commentary about everything that just happened, Moses, the writer of Genesis, gives us a commentary in which he focuses on the motives of Esau and not on Jacob. He could have said, thus Jacob cheated Esau out of his birthright, right? It wasn't very kind of Jacob to do that. It wasn't very nice. But the focus is on Esau's sin. Why? Well, it's because of how important the birthright is. Esau is the fool in this story. He had no taste for heavenly things. He had no remorse for his idolatry of food. His coping mechanism, if you will, for what he had just done was to reject his birthright altogether. Just pretend that it doesn't matter. Hope that it doesn't matter. Not think about it. Despise it. Well, this is all very bleak. But church, unlike those who refuse to repent, we have hope. We have hope. Why do we have hope? 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-2. through two. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Friend, if you are in Christ, all your sins have been forgiven. Past, present, and future, you are redeemed in Christ. And every time you sin, he will grant you repentance again because Christ is interceding for you. Friend, if you are not in Christ, you are in a dangerous situation. But there is hope. The Bible tells you how you can be made right with God. What did Jesus do 2,000 years ago? He came down from heaven, became a man, lived a perfect life, never sinned. He was killed. He was murdered for the sins of who? For, for the sins of those who would believe in him. 
On that cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't exaggerating. God really did forsake him. Why did God forsake him? Because he took on the sin of his people. And God cannot stand sin. The Bible says he will by no means clear the guilty. But he, he made a way. He made a way to declare the guilty innocent. By throwing their sin on Jesus Christ and punishing that sin, Christ died and was buried. And three days later, what did he do? He proved that the punishment was sufficient and that God's wrath was satisfied. And he commanded his disciples to preach the gospel to all nations before he went up to heaven. And now while he's in heaven, he's interceding for all of his people so that none of them will be lost. In Romans chapter 10, it says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, God will save you. You must repent of your sins and trust in Christ. His sacrifice is sufficient. And the inheritance that you will receive once you believe in Christ, after you die, after the new heavens and the new earth are created, that inheritance that God has in store for his people is the most precious thing you could ever imagine. Turn with me to Psalm 16. Verse 11, I would just quote it, but you should look at it with your own eyes because the truth is so glorious. Just think about it as you stare at it. Psalm 16, verse 11, this is speaking of the glory of living forever with God, the inheritance that Christians receive as a gift. Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Have you ever experienced full joy? Never. There's always a tinge of sadness. The joy is never as great as it could be. In the presence of God, when you die and when you see his face, if you are in Christ, if you have been cleansed by his blood, it's ecstasy. So much pleasure, so much joy, more pleasurable than anything you've ever imagined, this side of heaven, more pleasurable than anything you've ever experienced. The pleasure of being with Christ is so much more than soup and bread. Christians, Christ is worth the hunger. Christ is worth the hunger. In this life, you'll experience suffering, you'll experience hunger, frustration, pain, so many things. But Christ is worth the hunger. He is more precious than wealth, health, video games, books, sex, the next car, the next house, the next job, a spouse, retirement. He is so much better than all of those things. Cling to Christ. Make him your king. Make him your master. And he will be your treasure. And you will live with him forever. And you will have peace in this life because you know what is to come in the next life because of the kindness of God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Please cause us to cherish you more to look forward to heaven, to trust you with all of our hearts, and to know that 
we are, we are completely insufficient. We are nothing without you, and we need your grace. Lord, I pray that anyone in this room who is not saved would repent and believe in the gospel and be saved. Lord, please also encourage your church, your people. Please help us to persevere to the end, preserve us, and cause us to look forward to seeing your face, the most beautiful thing in all of the universe. Thank you so much for your word, Lord. May we take it seriously. In Christ's name, amen.